0: You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. We just read Pashat Mishpatim from the Torah, So after receiving the Torah with the thunder and the lightning and the Ten Commandments and Pasha Yitro and going through this huge spiritual experience, we go right into the nitty gritty of the mitzvot. Some of them seem kind of mundane, everyday kind of stuff. But that's what the Torah is all about. The Torah is something you adapt to your everyday life. And so we have statute after statute, law after law, which relate to things that happen in our everyday life. All these little details, the Evitevri. What happens if you wound your Evid What happens if a man digs a pit in the reshut the Rabim? He doesn't cover it, somebody gets hurt. What happens if a man steals an ox or a sheep and he gets caught? How much does he have to pay the owner back? What happens if you find a lost item? Under what conditions do you have to look for the owner? When you have to, when you don't have to, when you have your oosh, when don't you have your oosh? In short, all these little details, you put them all together, you get a whole. That's what makes up life. They seem trite. All these little things together make up the whole. And our Torah gets down to the nitty gritty of it. Torah comes from the word hora'ah, which means instructions. Instructions how to run your life. And the Pasha opens up where it says, These are the laws that you shall set before them. So Rashi asks, what does it mean before them? So Rashi explains it. He says it means you got to bring it before them, before the Beit Din, before the rabbis who decide these things. And not before the other nations. Let's say you went to a Goyesha court and you would get the same exact outcome. It doesn't matter. You don't go to those non-Jewish courts. You go to the Jewish court, to the Beit Din. And this isn't just a small halacha. Rashi says, if you don't do it, that is, if you bring the case before non-Jewish courts, what does it mean? You You profane the divine name. And you honor idols. You desecrate the name of God and give credit to other gods. Why is that? Why is it so severe, the punishment, somebody who takes his case to a non-Jewish court? After all, let's say you have an argument with some other Jew, with your neighbor about some issue. You go to court. We're talking about a monetary dispute. Even if the beitin would judge it the exact same way as the non-Jewish court, you can't go to the non-Jewish court. And the reason it's such a severe penalty for it is the following. God gave us the Torah. What is the Torah? The Torah is a bunch of laws. It's not just nice stories that we're used to hearing in vorts. It's a system of laws that we're supposed to apply to our everyday life. So if you have a dispute and you take it to a non-Jewish court, not run by Torah law. What you're basically saying is, yeah, the Torah is nice entertainment. I like hearing nice vorts and musar and lessons for life, but I don't take it seriously. It's just intellectual stimulation. But no, the Torah is a system of laws that we're supposed to live by. And it defines us. It defines our culture. It defines our society. The kind of court system that is implemented in a country, in a society, that really determines its culture. That's why the judicial reform debate is so huge that the left is willing to die for it because they know that if they control the court system, the judicial arena, then their Hellenism can prevail. Because again, it's not just a technical thing when you go to litigation. It defines who you are or what you are. That's why the great kings of Israel, like King David, the verses say about them, (laughs) v'asu mishpat They did mishpat, they ruled justly and righteously for their nation, that they sat in judgment on little things, on trite issues. Yeah, mishpat shlomo, the famous Solomon's you know, favorite court case everybody knows about where the two women come to him and he says, split the baby in half and you know, everybody knows the story. Why is that story brought down in our Bible? Because that's the role of a king, it's to judge the people. mishpat tzedakah. And the leaders of the Jewish people before the kings, they were called shoftim, they were called judges. Their job is to judge the people according to the Torah that God gave us at Sinai. And that's why the first Pasha after we got the Torah, after Pasha Yitro, was Pasha Mishpatim. Here you got the Torah. This is what it says. This is how you judge the people. And when you don't have justice, even in America, which just not Torah law, but there's no justice. And that's why people leave New York and LA because of the crime and there's no justice. When there's no justice and the criminals are treated like victims, and the victims are treated like criminals, once the judiciary falls, then you have chaos. So that's why the Torah emphasizes the laws of the Torah to be applied. And when you do apply Deen Torah, when we do go to a Beit Din, to a court that is run by Torah law, what we're doing is we're taking the heavens and bringing it down to earth. That is, God in the heavens gave us a Torah from heaven, but it was meant to be applied here on earth. It's not supposed to stay there up there in the heavens. We apply it here on this earth, and we do that by these very mundane alachas on Evid on the ox that gores, on a thief who stole, all those everyday items have to be judged by Torah law, and that's how society is run properly. Now, while 80% of the Pasha is talking about laws that relate to the individual and society in general, We also have laws that are national in scope. As we get towards the end of the Parsha, we get the verses that talk about driving out the Chivites and the Canaanites and the Chittites. Yeah, those are laws too. The laws about driving out the inhabitants of the land who are going to be thorns in your eyes if you don't throw them out. And then we have a verse at the end of the Parsha in chapter 23, verse 33. It says, They shall not dwell in your land. Just three Hebrew words. So simple. They shall not dwell in your land. It's talking about the hostile nations who dwell there. They should not dwell in your land. It's Eretz Yisrael. It's not Eretz Yishmael. It's the land of Israel. And somebody who gives you trouble in the land, they can't dwell in your land. And there's laws all about that. Just like there's laws about Kashrut and Shabbat. There are precise laws. What is the status of a non-Jew who wants to live in the land of Israel? What is the Jewish law regarding an Arab that throws rocks at you and Molotov cocktails? That's also Torah. Because God knew we weren't able to establish a Jewish state run by Torah law. If you have inside that state, people who want to drive you out, who want to kill you, who don't agree with those ideals. We didn't come to Israel just to set up another uh, Hebrew speaking democracy in the Middle East even though that makes people so proud, Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East. But let me break it to you. That's not where we came here after 2,000 years to set up a high-tech democracy or to create the only state in the Middle East where you can have gay parades. Maybe that's why people love us, but that's not the reason we came here. We gathered together after 2,000 years to set up a Hebrew society to be a orlegoyim, a light unto the nations, and you do that by applying Torah law, like in the days of Solomon. What happened then? He was the king. He was judging the people. He was applying Torah law. And all the nations came to see, wow, this is the way it's supposed to be. See, that's what a light into the nations is. It's not like living in New Jersey and doing chesed to your Gentile neighbors so everybody could say, wow, those Jewish people are such good people. That's kiddush Hashem too. That's also nice. But that's not being a light into the nations, really. That's a tiny, tiny, you know, flashlight, a minute spark. To be a light into the nations? We have to live in Israel, set up a society run by Torah so the nations around will say, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. And part of the way it's supposed to be is, lo yashvu they shall not dwell in your land. Now, this is an important verse, I'll tell you why. Most of the time when they talk about the Jews' right to the land of Israel, we always bring other verses like what God said to Abraham, I gave to your seed this land. All these verses about the land of Israel belonging to the Jewish people. But we never take the negative side of it, right? Lo yeshu But now in this verse, we get the other side of the coin. Not only is it our land, but it's not theirs. Lo yeshu They're not allowed to live here. That's not quoted as much because it's not as politically correct. It's much nicer to talk about the positive aspects of yeshu And two weeks ago, I was at this huge convention in Berené Umar. It was the Tenuat Nachala. They do a lot of good work with Daniela Weiss and they settle all over the land of Israel and a lot of uh, very idealistic people behind it and tons of people came, a lot of youth, very encouraging. They expected like 4,000 people, like 9,000 people came. It was packed. And the only thing that gets me is the same kind of speeches, which talk about, we're going to go back to Gaza and we're going to set up our settlements there like we did before. But I'm saying, yeah, but how are you going to do it if you still have Arabs there? To me, it's just an empty promise to excite the people. And boy, those kids were getting excited. And they would be for throwing out the Goyim if they got the message. But all we get is we're going back to northern Shamron. We're going back to Gaza. Yeah, but there's a problem. The Arabs in northern Gaza came back. You might not see them all because they're back in the tunnels. But I guess we're not going to talk about that part of it because we got to stay positive. Well, the problem is there's no inheriting of the land without disinheriting the inhabitants of the land. Lo the verse says, they shall not live in your land. And without that, we really can't come back to Gaza. I hate to say it. You know, let's say there never was an expulsion in Gush Katif. Let's say the Jews in Gush Katif stayed there in Neveit de Kalim and Yitzarim and all those wonderful Gush Katif settlements. You don't think October 7th could have happened to those communities? You don't think a massacre could have happened even if Jews had lived there inside Gaza as they had been? Of course it could have happened, just like it could have happened here in Yudav Shamron. Now, it's not just a matter of settling the land. It's a matter of Hashem and Kirsh Hashem. When the Arabs did what they did to us on Shemini that day, October 7th, that will be a day of victory for them every single year. You'll see, next October 7th, for them, it's going to be a huge celebration. Every year, it marks the day that they won. They slaughtered a lot of Jews. They were able to do what Arab nations like Egypt and Syria weren't able to do to us. And the only way we reverse that The only way we reverse that is making it a Nakba that we take that day and we turn it into a defeat that every time they think October 7th, they're going to remember what we did to them, that we wiped them out, that we obliterated the Hamas and Gaza, blew smithereens. If we don't change the perception of October 7th, we're going to lose. If the Israeli leaders had any vision, they'd be pushing for mass expulsion, for massive transfer. Instead of hundreds of trucks going into Gaza, there should be trucks going out of Gaza with Gazans inside those trucks, bringing them to Arizona. America's taking everybody anyway. They don't say no. Send them to Jordan, to Egypt. Don't even ask. That is the only way to reverse the perception of October 7th. So it's no longer a victory in their eyes. I want to bring up something that I heard from two different people who know what they're talking about almost every time. One is Jonathan Pollard and the other is Major General Yitzhak Brick. Both of them, before and after October 7th, have mentioned the waste and the corruption and the squandering of the funds that reach the IDF. For years, Yitzhak Brick has talked about the fact that there's no accountability for the money that flows into the IDF. And why do I bring this up? Because I know how much the soldiers following October 7th how much they were short on equipment. If anybody has a kid in the army, he'll tell you. When my son Yehuda got called to Gaza on October 8th, on his first day in the army, he asked me if I know somebody who can raise money for army boots. They have holes in them. The guys don't have enough equipment. They got stuff from World War II, for crying out loud. And we all saw that following October 7th, how good Jews were scrambling to get the soldiers new equipment because the stuff they had was either lacking or was substandard. And it's not just Jonathan Pollard and Yitzhak Brick talking about it. The Israeli news service, the Times of Israel, they ran an article all about this on October 9th, two days after the massacre, when the IDF mobilized tens of thousands of reservists. And let me read what it says here on October 9th in the Times of Israel. It says like this, reserve soldiers from all over the country complained on social media Sunday that they were not properly equipped by the military for the anticipated large scale operations with many seeking to privately purchase the required gear. And so that's what we saw and we still see it. All these private initiatives of good Jews buying vests and flashlights and goggles because the ones the soldiers had were in lousy condition or didn't have any at all. So this is known. Now it's not just as a lack of funds. The problem is that we know where a lot of the money goes. And this is something that the State Comptroller uncovered. What? That military pensions have been raised with no accountability at a cost of billions of shekels. In the army, these guys retire at 40 with these blown up pensions, and there's no transparency. You can read about this in hundreds of articles of how they give retirees 10% increases, 8% increases. Sometimes army retirees receive a 19% increase. If you read Globes, which is Israel's business newspaper, it's a daily publication, and it's not left to right, it just gives the statistics, gives the facts, doesn't have a political agenda, you'll get these staggering statistics. And so that's where a lot of this money is going. Now we all love our IDF and our military man, but the sad fact is these military people in the IDF, they're not necessarily driven by ideology. Just because they're career soldiers that doesn't necessarily make them, you know, great patriots. The army's a career, just like any other career and a lucrative one at that. And so when people say about Ehud Barak, for instance, Oh, he risked his life in the army all those years. First of all, it's a career. Did you ever notice that the worst politicians, the ones who were ideologically vapid, those are the people that came out of the army. Why do you think it is that nobody makes a worse politician? Then these army generals that went into politics. I'm not just talking about Gantz or Barak. All of them. That guy Liptim Shachak. Name me any one of these military guys who went into politics and achieved something positive for the nation of Israel. They entered the Israeli political arena because we all love our generals. And these people are the most ideologically empty vessels you'll ever find on Israeli political landscape. I mean, there might be exceptions like Raful Eitan. But why do these career military guys make the worst politicians? The reason is that the army teaches one to be ideologically sterile. You're not allowed politics in the army after all. You got to stay neutral. You got to stay sterile. And so these people come out. They have no real direction. And so they're not ideological people. They're practical men with no solid ideology to anchor them either way. Look what happened to Ariel Sharon when he left the army. He'll go down in the books as a great military man. But when he entered politics, it's not just a mixed bag, it's a horrible bag. He dismantled Yamit, he dismantled Gush Katif, the great Ariel Sharon. That's what happens when these generals enter politics. And so I just mentioned that because that's where the money's going. That's supposed to be going to buy goggles and helmets and shoes. Don't kid yourself. These are the army elites. These are the judicial reform opponents, the pilots, their corruption is at the highest levels. They really are the privileged Ashkenazi white class. I want to bring up one more halacha, one more law that's mentioned in our Parsha, Parsha Mishpatim. And it's a law regarding what to do if a thief is breaking into your house at nighttime. It's called Aganava And the halacha says that if you catch a thief in your house at night, you're allowed to kill him. And Rashi gives the reason. This is what he says. Ba'la go. If one comes to slay you, arise and slay him first. And Rashi continues. But hey, the thief, he's not coming to slay you. He's coming to rob you. Yes, that's true, Rashi says. But when a robber enters your house at night, he knows well that if the owner of the house wakes up and finds out about it, he's not going to just stand there and let the thief take his stuff. He's going to struggle And fight with that thief. And since the thief knows this, and he's prepared for a confrontation, and therefore it's written, if one comes to slay you, slay him first. Because this thief is prepared for that. He's going in there knowing there's going to be a confrontation. And therefore it is considered that he came to kill you. Because the thief knew that there was going to be a possible scenario where the owner of the house and him would have a struggle. And therefore you are allowed to kill him. And this is really important because when we hear the saying or the law, if one comes to slay you, arise and slay him first, you always think, well, people think that in order to kill somebody in self-defense, he's got to be coming at you with a knife and a kafir yelling Allah Akbar. Only then you're allowed to kill him. No, we see here in this case, in this law, where we apply the halacha of if one comes to slay you, arise and slay him first, You don't have to wait until the knife is on your throat. You anticipate. That's the key word. You anticipate beforehand. Like with this thief who comes to you in the middle of the night, the Torah is thinking a couple steps ahead here. It anticipates that this thief may be ready to kill you. So you don't have to wait for him to put the gun to your head. He came to rob you, but he's ready to kill you because he knows he'll resist. So you can kill him. So again, we see that you're supposed to anticipate things. And that's why it says, if one comes to slay you, arise and slay him first. What do you mean arise? That is, don't let the situation get that close. You arise at Vatican early in the morning because you're anticipating. And it's funny because when Tucker Carlson interviewed Putin and when he saw that Putin is a Christian, a devout Christian somehow, he asked him, why did you attack Ukraine after all? You're a Christian. We Christians know what Christ said. Christ said to turn the other cheek. That's what Tucker Carlson asked Putin. Seriously, that's what he asked him. Christ said to turn the other cheek. And why don't you turn the other cheek? And all I could think was the Crusades and the Inquisitions and how the Christians turned the other cheek. Yeah. Anyway, to our point, we Jews, we don't believe in turning the other cheek. We believe in, if one comes to slay you, l'argo, arise and slay him first. Anyway, speaking of not turning the other cheek, you can listen to my Bible classes. If you Google Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, or there's a link at the bottom of this page, or you can find me on lennygoldberg.com, and you'll find the link to my Bible classes over there. And in the Bible, you learn about authentic Jewish leaders who certainly didn't turn the other cheek, but when according to the law of, if one comes to slay you, slay him first. That's what King David did. That's what Yav did and Yoshua and Saul. See, in the Bible, we learn authentic Jewish concepts. We find out what it was like before the exile emasculated us. And so we don't see King David or King Saul sending humanitarian aid to the enemy. That's not Jewish ethics. Jewish ethics is going in the way of David and Joshua when there was no such thing as innocence in a time of war, certainly not against an enemy as vicious as the Arabs who have stepped into the biblical shoes of Amalek in every way. So if you wanna get back to the sources, join me in these Bible classes. And it's not just about war, it's about life. It's about chesed and staka in an authentic Jewish way because there are certain things you can only get from the Jewish Bible. It's a lot more than Jewish history because it was written by the prophets. And so it has layers of meaning. And that's why it's so important to acquaint yourself with authentic Jewish learning, learning the Bible the way it's supposed to be learned. And I'll be back next week. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel.